This is Genesis 42 through 45, and the title is Reopening Old Wounds. That's exactly what's going to happen. Last week, we saw Joseph's life had appeared to reach its peak. He had gone from the favorite son of his father to a slave, to the steward of the house, to a prisoner, to the steward of the prison. He thought he was going to get out, and then he didn't. Two years of, of deferred hope. And then he's brought to Pharaoh's side where he interprets the dreams. And now he's made the second in command of all Egypt. And he's got a chariot and he's got a wife and he's got children now. And this would be, if we were writing the story, a good place to fade to black and put the end. In fact, Joseph had two children, one named Manasseh, which means forgotten in Hebrew. He says, because God has made me to forget the land of my fathers and to forget the trouble that I've been through. He had a son named Ephraim, which means fruitful. He says, I've been fruitful in this new land. He says, I've moved on, is essentially what the names of those children mean. But you and I both know that there is a deep wound in Joseph that's been forgotten, but it hasn't been healed. And there is a difference. You know the difference, don't you? We can get over something. It's not the same thing as being healed from something. And as we learned in the story of Jacob, as we saw in the life of Moses, the hero has to go back. You, you cannot go out, get your act together, and think everything's fine, and abandon everything that you left behind. Moses had to go back to Egypt to get his people out of there. Jacob had to go back to reconcile with his brother Esau. Very often, the Lord will do a work in our lives. We go through the wilderness. We go through the desert for a while. The Lord does something through us. We achieve some peace. We achieve sanctification by the Holy Spirit. But we try to ignore or keep at a distance the wounds that we've in endured in the past. We say, I don't need to deal with that. That's, that's B.C. That's before Christ. Don't got to worry about it. I'm just going to focus on the right now. But God heals us so that we may heal others. Isn't that true? God wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And that sounds great, but you know that it's hard to bless you sometimes, and God is so patient with you. And God says, I want you to go and do what I did for you to those people that hurt you. And until you can go back to where you've been hurt, especially in the family, your story is going to remain incomplete. The story of Joseph seems like it's over, but it's not. Because there's this thing under the surface that he has managed to forget about, but it's still there and it still hurts and God wants to heal it. And encounters like this, where you've got to face up to your past, especially to family members, old relationships, old friends, they can be the most painful. Because you maybe have learned so much over the years, but you come face to face with that person and it's like none of that ever happened. And you're just as angry and just as bitter, and just as afraid as you were then. It also can be dangerous, spiritually dangerous. What does that mean? That means that you can have learned so much as a believer, and grown with the Lord, but then the moment comes to apply it, and you run from it. That is a spiritually dangerous thing to do, as Jesus told us, to withhold forgiveness when you've been forgiven. But you've got to go through this. This is, this is almost the last gauntlet of so many in Scripture, going back to the ones that had hurt them first, that caused all this trouble, to go and make that right. That is the hardest part, but it must be undertaken.
And I've found that in every Christian's life, your family relationships are the last ones to be sanctified. Isn't that true? You're good with everybody else. Mom and dad, brother, sister, kids. It somehow just takes longer. But you can't neglect them. You can't say, well, I'm not going to think about that because that's really hard. The Lord will direct you to that place where you've got to face up to it. And that's what's going to happen to Joseph. He's going to have this problem come knocking on his door. So will we read together chapter 42? We're going to do this all one chapter at a time. So let's read chapter 42, all 38 verses of it. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for this journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. 
At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, we know from chapter 45, verse 6, that at the end of this story, it will have been two years of famine. You remember it was seven years of plenty to be followed by seven years of famine, which means by the end of this story, and we can assume that it took several months, it will have been nine years since Joseph was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. We know he was 30 when that happened, which means at this point, Joseph is between 37 and 39 years old. He's had at least seven years of happiness and freedom, but in Canaan they have no grain. Joseph, of course, remember, he came up with that plan for Pharaoh. We're going to take a fifth of the grain from the people for seven years, store it up, and then we'll give it back when the seven years of plenty come. So Jacob sends his sons, excluding Benjamin, to Egypt. And Joseph is just having another day at the office, and in come ten brothers from Canaan. His ten brothers. They don't recognize him. Not only has it been years, he would have looked like an Egyptian. His head would have been shaved. He would have had the paint on the face and the clothing and the wealth and the stature. And they probably weren't speaking directly to him, but he would have been elevated and above them. His name was introduced. Remember, his Egyptian name was Zaphanat Panea. He wasn't going by Joseph. And they all see him and they all bow down to Joseph. We read this back in chapter 37, the sheaves of wheat, the stars, the sun and the moon bowing down to Joseph. All that has come true now. And he remembers, but they don't know who he is. And he accuses them of being spies. He speaks harshly to them. And they're protesting, no, we're not spies, we're brothers. And he puts them in prison for three days. He says, one of you can go back. The rest of you are going to stay here in prison to bring Benjamin back to him. Eventually, he's going to allow nine of them to go back and one of them to stay. He's going to keep Simeon. We don't know why it was Simeon. All the movies make Simeon the mean one. And it very well could have been that. It could have been that Simeon was a sort of ringleader when the, uh, the trouble went down. But it doesn't say, so it's just speculation. But in a very, really pathetic moment for this family, they're speaking in their own language, which we knows Hebrew and expecting he doesn't understand them, speaking to themselves and saying, this is because of what we did to Joseph. 
God is repaying us for what we did to him. And Joseph begins to weep and has to leave the room. And they're on their way home, and they realize that all their money has been returned. All the gold that they gave, or the silver, to, to Joseph has been replaced in their bag. This is the guy that has accused them of being spies. Now their money has been put back in the bag. So they're thinking, this guy probably thinks we're thieves as well as spies. And they want to go back, but Jacob says, no way. I've already lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. You're not taking Benjamin too. And Reuben comes in, and Reuben is a very strange figure in the book of Genesis. He says, well, you can kill my sons if we can't bring Benjamin back. You got a picture of Jacob saying, and that's going to make me feel better? Refuses to allow Benjamin to leave his side. Now, we've got to ask the question going through this story what is Joseph doing? What's going on here? Why is he acting this way? And I've seen various attempts to spiritualize what Joseph is doing here. He's testing them to see if they've repented. And I really don't think that's what's going on here. But also, it's tough to, well, Joseph was trying to get revenge on them. But then they'll do things like give the money back. This is the best way I know to understand this. I'm of the opinion that Joseph did not fully know what he was going to do here. He wasn't prepared for this. He had no plan. This was dropped in his lap. So doesn't that happen sometimes? There's a situation you don't know how you're supposed to handle it, and it's just dropped in your lap, and you end up acting funny. He wants to punish them. Put you in prison. See how you like it. But he also wants to see them again, and it breaks his heart to see them. He wants to meet his brother Benjamin, but he also wants to help the family, but he doesn't want to let them know who he is. He's probably still afraid. We can have those irrational fears from years of of pain because feelings about our families are complicated, are they not? We'll say things about our family and even think things that make us go, I don't really think that, but I think I kind of do. I'm so mad I never want to see them again, but it would break my heart to never see them again. What can we see from this story in addition to Joseph's reaction and their statements about this is what we did to Joseph and Jacob who still isn't, nobody's moved on from this. This is what you've got to see here. Nobody has gotten over what happened. It's been years now and nobody has gotten over. It's been 20 years or more and they're still thinking to themselves, this is because of what we did to Joseph. The wound is still raw. Joseph can name his son Manasseh and say, I've forgotten it, I've moved on, all he wants. But Joseph is acting erratically in this story. We have never seen Joseph act erratically. He has always been the one who's in control. He's calm. He's got integrity. Now we're looking at him and I wonder if his servants were like, what's up with Zaphonat Paneah? You know, Your Honor, I I don't think they're spies. Oh, they are spies. Put them in jail. All right, if you say so. You can see the way that even Jacob is clinging to Benjamin, who is not a child any longer, out of grief and out of fear. Few things wound deeper than being hurt by someone who was supposed to take care of you. Isn't that true? Few things wound deeper than being hurt by someone who was supposed to take care of you. Psalm 55, David wrote this about Ahithophel, his counselor who had helped with Absalom's rebellion. David's son had launched a coup against him, and David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel, had helped him. And he wrote this in Psalm 55. He says, It is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. 
It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. He says, if it was a Philistine coming at me, I'd be okay, because that's what Philistines do. They attack. We're enemies. But it's you. It's my friend. We worshiped together. We took sweet counsel together. We had those, those intimate moments. And you've betrayed me. It's easy to get over so many things. But family pain can scar you for life. It might have been years, but those wounds will stay raw despite how deep you try to bury them and not think about them and ignore them and get past them. We've all known that person who is calm and easygoing and everything seems great and they're kind, but you bring up their father and they blow up in your face. Many a wife or fiance has found this to be true as they grow closer together and more of those walls fall down and she says the wrong thing about his mother or father or brother. Maybe he says, you're acting just like your dad. Boom! Because this is real. And this is why you've got to hear what I say to you today, our first thing. You cannot allow these things to remain dormant. You will never be whole until these things are resolved. Joseph would have preferred to forget the whole thing. So would have Moses. Lord, pick somebody else. I want to see the Israelites delivered too. But I, I, can't, I can't go back. No way. And the Lord had to get stern with him, didn't he? Because God knew better. What do you think Joseph's prayers were like that night? Lord, why? You had to bring them here? I haven't thought about them in years, and there they are, and it all comes rushing back, and I'm 17 again. But God knew what needed to be done. You've got to acknowledge the depth of the hurt in your heart. You've got to bring it to the Lord, because what will happen is it will spring up into a fountain of bitterness where you wonder why you can't trust people. You wonder why you can't love people. You wonder why you cannot allow yourself to receive the grace of God. It's because deep in your heart you have allowed the enemy to make you bitter, and now you can't even connect with God or your wife or your husband or your children in a way that you ought to. This came knocking on Joseph's doorstep. And this is what happens. When family pain happens, we don't act like ourselves which is a reminder. God, why does God bring things like that into our life? To show us the parts of ourselves that aren't done yet. Amen. That's what trials are for, to show you what still needs to be worked on. Well, let's look at chapter 43. We're going to read these 34 verses now. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told them was an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. 
From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him on the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's youngest son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Finally, Jacob is persuaded to send Benjamin along. And we should keep in mind, it says in this passage, they call him the lad, they call him the boy, but... That, that term was not specifically a reference to youth all the time. It could have referred to the fact that he was unmarried or that he was the youngest. Benjamin is probably around 20 years old or more at this point. So he's a grown man. But his father is not going to let him go because he does not want to lose the last son of the wife he loved, Rachel. And Judah ends up being the one who takes leadership here. We saw Judah in chapter 38. Do you remember? He had that 
terrible incident with his daughter-in-law where she dressed herself as a prostitute and he had sexual relations with her and she had two twins by him after the other sons had been killed by the Lord. Reminding us that he seems to have learned his lesson. Those stories would have played out about parallel to one another. And Judah seems to have grown up. And while Reuben is saying, you can kill my kids, Judah steps in and says, I myself will be the one to bear the, the burden here. What you're supposed to get from this, I believe, is that Judah will be the one to have the family inheritance and blessing and birthright. And you're supposed to be contrasting the two that Reuben is not a fit leader of these people. And they come back with double the money. They've got a gift for Joseph. But he welcomes them with a celebration. Ah, God must have given you the money back. We've already got it. It's all good. And when Joseph meets Benjamin again, after they bow down to him a second time, he has to excuse himself to go weep again. This is the second time this has happened to Joseph. After everything he's been through, down in the pit, lied on and sent to prison, two years waiting for that cupbearer to get back to him. But seeing his brother again broke his heart. The only one of his brothers who did not sell him into slavery. And they come and have dinner together. And Joseph seems to mess with his brothers here. He sets out their places and he sets them out according to age. So Reuben's first and Simeon and Levi and Judah and all the way down to Benjamin. And says they're looking at each other like, what's going on here? How did he know? How does he know our ages? He's messing with them. And he, he gives them portions from his table. This is so not the way we do hospitality today. Back then, you had the, the most important person would sit above everybody else. He would have the best portions of the meal. And you would show favor to somebody in the hall by sending them something from your table, right? The, the king's portion, right? This is similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did with the, uh, the boys that he took from Judah in Babylon. They were fed from the king's table. It was a point of honor. Well, Joseph does this, but... Benjamin gets five times as much as everybody else. You also should note here, we're not going to get too far into this tonight, it will come up next week, that the Egyptians and Hebrews are not sitting with each other. We've talked about this already, that the Egyptians believed that anybody that worked with livestock was unclean. And we've looked at the Egyptian culture. They would shave their hair. They would wash themselves compulsively. Cleanliness was a big deal for them. So somebody out there with cows and sheep who's got a big long beard that lives in the desert, there was a cleanliness thing there. And that segregation is, is going to lead to slavery later on. But for now, it's just something to point out. Again, what, what's going on with Joseph here? What's he doing? Oh, he wanted to see his brothers again. We're going to have dinner this time. He probably wanted to demonstrate it and show off a little bit all that he had. Look at everything that I've accomplished, even though they didn't know who he was yet. And also, if you look at verse 34, it says, They drank and were merry with him. That phrase, were merry, every other time in the Old Testament is translated, got drunk. So not only is Joseph having lunch with his brothers, they're having a good old time. Making up for lost time, you could, you could almost say here. They're celebrating, they're enjoying themselves, they're partying. You can imagine, like leave, us, leave that aside for a moment. This is not trying to cast any kind of moral judgment on Joseph. What you're supposed to see is Joseph has probably longed for something like this with his family his whole life. He missed out on all the relationship and friendship and young manhood that he could have had with his brothers. 
And now he finally gets to have that with them, even though they don't know who he is. You can see this love and this longing that he has for these brothers that he was so mad at, he threw them all in prison for three days last time. Again, how you feel about your family is never straightforward, is it? So what's the lesson here? And the first thing was you've got to acknowledge the wound and acknowledge the pain. But here's the second thing. You must also acknowledge your own longing for reconciliation. Psalm 133. It's only three verses, so I'll read the whole thing. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So good for brothers to dwell together in unity, which is what Joseph is longing for here. You could say, why is he showing off to these guys? What is Zaphonat Panea up to? Why is he giving them food from his table? And why, why are we sticking around long past lunch, you know, getting more and more bottles out and having a good time with these spies that were in prison five minutes ago? Because it's brothers dwelling together in unity. And you've got to acknowledge that that's in you too. And we can say, I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. I don't want anything to do with her anymore. If she came knocking on my door, I'd send her away. I wouldn't pick up the phone. But I submit to you that the reason you react so strongly to that is because deep inside of yourself, that is exactly what you want. You want your husband, your wife, to make it right with you. You want your kids to come home for Thanksgiving dinner. You want your parents to be kind to you and to see their grandkids. And you can react however you want, but the, the, when we get angry and get loud, it's not because we don't care. It's because we care deeply. But we're so afraid that we're going to get hurt and pained again that we would rather cut all that off. And you might say, well, I want to. She doesn't. He doesn't. What about Esau? Remember how scared Jacob was coming back? He was sending all these presents to Esau. Hey, here's a dozen more cows. I'm really sorry about the whole birthright thing, Esau. And he's so scared. He's splitting up his family in two. He's thinking I'm making a break for it himself. God had to break his hip to make him stay. And he sees Esau. And what does Esau do? Esau falls on his neck and weeps for him. Esau wanted that reconciliation just as much as Jacob did. Oh, they're not like Esau. You don't know them. Well, just think, though. Let me ask you this question. If you could have it all done with and have the relationship back to normal, would you want that? Well, of course I would, but it's never going to happen. Well, we're not worrying about how it's happening yet. We've just got to acknowledge the fact that that's in us. You've got to let that motivate you. You might not even know that you know it. Joseph, again, probably didn't even understand what was going on. The next morning he woke up, he's probably thinking, what did I do that for? I swore I was going to hate these guys forever. I swore that I was never, ever going to let them hurt me again. God knows, though. And in His mercy, God will steer your life back in that direction. You're like, this guy is like a bad penny. He just keeps coming up in my life. I don't want to see him anymore. I don't want to see her anymore. But God's like, but you need to. God, make me holy. Okay, call your dad. Well, can we do something else? No, no way. That's not how it works. God, God, have you noticed that God likes to take the shortcut on things sometimes? Lord, make me holy and righteous. And God tells you what he wants you to do. And you go, oh, we're going to start there? 
We're going to start with the final exam. We're not going to build our way up to that. And God goes, why would we? Let's just get it done now. And, you know, our, our culture has this weird attitude towards family. And I, I'm not going to sit here and denounce things because it's not the day for that. I'm just interested to see how the reaction will be played out later because it always happens. Now, now you've got the whole thing that if Thanksgiving is awkward with your family, then just do it with your friends. You know, your friends are the family you choose. You don't need to be with them. You didn't pick those parents. You didn't pick those kids. So, you know, you got to live your own life and, and have your own thing going on. And that, that's very strange and very odd, you know. But I wonder how that's, that's going to play out because that doesn't work. That does not work. Avoiding the reconciliation, denying the fact that the deepest thing in your heart is to make this right, that's not going to lead to a happy life, is it? Well, you don't know what they did to me. I'm not suggesting for a minute that what was done to you was right. You don't know what he did. No, I don't. You don't know what she said to me. I sure don't. But I'm trying to draw that instinctual family affection, brotherly kindness, the Bible calls it. I'm trying to draw that out of you because it's God-given. God put that in you. And psychologists will say the stupidest things like, why is it that we have more connection to our parents than anybody else? That's so strange, isn't it? It's like, you're, you're too educated. What did, what did he say to Paul? Much learning has made you insane later. That's, that's the truth of that. Because God's put that together. Because that is how God maintains His people. Malachi said that husband and wife come together, the Holy Spirit is in them, that they may produce godly offspring. The family is the unit that God uses to maintain the knowledge of God and righteousness. And we say, I'm going to get everything else right except this. God goes, I don't think so. God has steered these people back into Joseph's life. And he's stumbling along. Simeon was in prison yesterday. They're partying together today. Because there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of joy being churned up here. And he probably doesn't know how to sort it all out. I don't know if I'm happy. I don't know if I'm sad. But I know that I'm feeling deeply. Well, let's see what happens next. Chapter 44. We'll read the whole thing. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground third time. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? 
And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. You'll remember Sheol is the grave. It's the, it's the place where the dead go. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, and as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Well, once again, Joseph pulls a fast one on his brothers. He puts the money in the bags again, and he puts the cup in Benjamin's sack again. And this time he sends his men out to retrieve them with Benjamin caught in the act, as it were. And they're making these foolish vows like, you can kill whichever one stole the cup because they're so confident that nobody did. And then Benjamin has it in his sack. They tear their clothes because they're thinking exactly what dad was afraid of has come true. And Joseph mentions that this cup was used for divination. What they would do is they would put oil in the water and watch how the water or the oil swirled around and they would see omens and signs in it. This is likely a ruse, obviously. Joseph had the reputation for being able to interpret dreams. So I'm sure there were stories that were told about him, right? You know, it's got to be that silver cup. That's got to be what it is. And he, they bring him back. He says, what, you thought you could run? Don't you know that I can see the future? Don't you know that I can interpret dreams? We know that Joseph served God. And every other time this was brought up, he said, it's not me, it's the Lord. So we can rest confident that Joseph was not also practicing magic. But it's sort of beside the point in the story. For a third time, they bow down, begging, just put us all in prison. Better that than we all go back. But Joseph insists, no, 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 just Benjamin. He's tormenting them, isn't he? There's an interesting mark in verse 14. It says, Judah and his brothers. Who's taken up leadership of this family now? It's not Reuben. It's Judah. Because remember, Reuben had sinned with his father's concubines. Simeon and Levi had sinned by sacking the city of Shechem while all the men were still in the pain of their circumcision. And Judah is stepping up. 
He offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Again, what is Joseph doing here? Perhaps he just wanted to punish the brothers, make them miserable. I see how you like it. Maybe he really wanted to keep Benjamin with him. But again, I think he's acting erratically. I think he's emotional. I think he's confused. I don't think he really knows what's going on. He's just doing things. And it must have been even more confusing for him to see the change in Judah. Judah, back in chapter 37, was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph. Everybody else was like, let's throw him in the pit and see how he likes it. And they just left him in the pit and they said, well, just, we'll get him out and we feel like he's suffered enough. He goes, you know, we can make a little money off of this. That was Judah's idea. He was the one, although Joseph wouldn't have known this yet, he was the one who defiled Tamar. But now he's offering himself in Benjamin's place. What's the lesson? People change. Rarely are people the same ones who hurt you, especially when it's been a long time. Especially when you were young. You're a kid and a brother or a sister, or you're in high school and a girlfriend or boyfriend hurt you. Even in your youth as an adult and you grow old. Often we end up in a state of, you might say, arrested understanding, where we think of that situation like we thought about it when we were five or 10 or 12 or 16. And we're thinking like children or like adolescents, and we think there's no way after 40 years that she's changed at all. She seems nice. Nope, nope, you don't know her like I know her. You're not the same person, are you? You know what? Actually, sometimes we can change less than the people who abuse us because they move on and we're still nurturing that pain like, like Gollum under the mountain. And it changes us and twists us and it keeps us from moving on. And sometimes people will confront their accuser and the person's like, I don't even remember doing that to you. It wasn't that big a deal in the grand scheme of things, but because this person allowed it to become blown up, they couldn't even see that the person who did this to me changed. What's needed for every relationship to be healed is for you to view the one that you are in conflict with as a person. As a person whom Jesus died for. And recognize that people and their characters are not fixed, but that God can work out sanctification in people. You might say, this happened last week. Well, do you at least have the hope that God can bring about a change in that person? That's impossible. Don't say that. Because you are resting on the hope that God is able to change and save people who are hopeless. So you don't get to assign that to other people. If you don't believe God can save him or her, what makes you think God can save you? Matthew 5 verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. People that make peace between warring factions. And this does not have to be a third party, by the way. You can be one of the offended couple that are fighting. You can be the one to step in and say, I was the one that was injured, but I'm going to be the one to make peace. The Bible says that's a divine thing to do. That's what God does. That's what sons of God do. When you stop looking at yourself and you start looking at the person who hurt you, all Joseph's been able to think about his whole life is what was done to him. And it was a grievous thing. But now he's talking face to face with his brother Judah and he can see the profound shift in his character, the maturity that's come into his life. He now sees him as a man who's had to live with nearly two decades or more of what he did to his brother. And Joseph pities him in that moment. 
that's when you can start to see the path to peace. When you see that the person that hurt you is just as guilty, just as open to sin and open to grace as you are. Joseph has been holding on to his picture of who Judah and these others were and treating them accordingly when it was time for him to move on. Judah here has become the prefigure of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah himself is is acting this out by standing in the gap and saying, I'll take it on myself. I will be the one to die for my brother. Something that Joseph was not yet willing to do at this point in the story. He wasn't willing to give himself up for any of his brothers. Jesus stood in the gap for us all. And by so doing, Jesus taught us that we are to work out reconciliation between one another because it's what he did for us, right? And this is exactly what we're going to see. Chapter 45 is one of the happiest chapters in the whole Bible. Let's read it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. 
Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Finally, Joseph breaks down. He sends out his attendants, weeping for all to hear. I wonder what the brothers thought when that happened, when that first outburst came. And in their own tongue, now he's speaking Hebrew. He's not speaking through an interpreter anymore. He shows himself and he asks about his father and they're astonished. Imagine the fear and the guilt that would have come upon them. This guy can have us killed. But he draws them closest. Get over here. Come here. Come to me. You can see him coming down maybe off of the dais down to where they would have been. Maybe taking off the, the Egyptian headdress and letting them really see his face. Because Joseph is able to see what God had done even through their sin. And he's grateful for it in the end. He has finally come to the place where he's grateful that he was sold into slavery. He is grateful that he was lied on and sent to prison. Grateful for the delay with the cupbearer. Because now Lord has used him to save the whole world. And he forgives them for all that they did. Look at all the tears in this story. These grown men falling on each other's necks and weeping. They're little boys again, reunited. Forgiveness and reconciliation is an incredible thing. And when you see it happen, it often looks just like this. All of that pain comes breaking down in one moment, and it's, it's emotional, and there's laughter, and there's tears. He says, I'm going to find a place for you in Goshen, and we'll look at that later. And Pharaoh himself sends for Jacob with an entourage and an escort. I'm sure armed guards to make sure they were safe. And Joseph... Kind of cheeky here. It says, now, now don't quarrel on the way home. I don't want to hear y'all fighting with one another, selling somebody else into slavery. <laughs> it's all water under the bridge. He's joking about it now. He's moved on. And back in Canaan, Jacob hears the story, but Jacob is numb. Jacob refuses to allow himself to believe this is true because remember the last time this happened, he went out to the ash heap and refused to be comforted. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to let myself get hurt that way again. He's numb. But when they finally convince him, it says his spirit revived. This is one of the most cathartic moments in all of Scripture. This is, this is what you might call the climax of the book of Genesis. There's more to come. There's going to be some falling action, right? But th this is where it all builds up. From the beginning in the garden all the way through Abraham and his struggles and Isaac and his struggles and Jacob and his failures and struggles and all the children of Jacob were one by one falling prey to the sin of the world. Joseph gets sent away, but now it's all brought together. Joseph allowed his love to overtake his bitterness and he forgives his brothers. He's not even permitting them to blame themselves anymore. Don't feel bad. Don't. Don't be mad at yourself. This is the ultimate picture of Christ here. The exalted son forgiving the very ones who cast him down. And then the father 
so to speak, is going to bring them all into that blessed country to be with the Son forever. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Because he can see that that treachery that you did to me was used for the saving of all the nations. And it's the same thing for Jesus. Jesus went through the ultimate betrayal, but he did not hold it against us because he said that is what was used for the salvation of all the nations. When you recognize that God is able to turn even betrayal into good, you won't hold grudges to people. Because you'll see that God's sovereignty is able to move through that and to redirect the momentum of sin in the other direction. The love that Christ showed us, for which we are so grateful. We sang about it tonight. We pray about it. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you. I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but you loved me anyway, Jesus. I didn't deserve it. Thank you. Well, yes, but you've got to give that to other people. You, or John says, then you haven't really experienced the love of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, when he's giving the Lord's prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, he picks it up and says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is an important threat from Jesus Christ. This kind of forgiveness. Oh, it's so wonderful, it's so beautiful, not for me. Mm -mm. This is required of those who think they're going to receive forgiveness from the Lord. But it's not just because God's like, I did it for you, you better do it. Those who refuse to forgive and refuse to make peace, you'll be bound up for the rest of your life. You'll be stunted in your spiritual growth. You'll be unable to enter into the joy of the Lord. I've known several people that say, I, I pray and I come to church and I read and I, and I try to do all the right things, but I just can't move on. I can't grow. I'm not getting any better. And you talk to them and you find out there's some profound unforgiveness in their life. You've got to forgive your mother. You've got to forgive your father. You've got to forgive God, maybe. Your ex-husband, your ex-wife. Well, I have. Have you, though? Why are you getting so tense when I bring this up? There's nothing to do with them. Yeah, but it does, though. Because unforgiveness is, is... The Bible says not to give Satan a foothold. If there is one major foothold that Satan can get easily, it's unforgiveness. I know people and I know stories of folks who have been bound up in sickness even. And the moment they're willing to finally let go of their unforgiveness, even their, their sickness is healed. Because there are things that the Lord uses in our lives, like sickness, like pain, to bring attention to the spiritual problem. Joseph could have leaned into his rights and said, justice, you're all going to be put to death. Could have given in to his pain, but instead he said, I'm going to show grace and mercy. Love is willing to extend the hand of forgiveness first, before repentance is shown. Well, if they ask for it, I'll forgive them. <laughs> no, no, no. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, a lesson for another day, but it's an important balance to have. Sometimes separation is necessary for a time in relationships. We know that. But always with the goal of reconciliation. We don't separate and say, I'm done with you. I don't want anything to do with you ever again. You say, I think we need to be apart for a time until we can be able to reconcile this situation. 
And you might say, well, you're saying that I've got to go and, and put myself back in this terrible, abusive situation? No, but let me ask you the question. If that person were to come to you on hands and knees repenting and asking for your forgiveness, are you ready to give it to them? Well, if they came on their hands and knees, then maybe, okay, no, no, no. Are you already forgiven them in your heart? All they've got to do is ask. Well, they haven't asked yet. All right. Well, let the Lord work on your heart until you're ready. The moment may never come. But I found that often when we do walk in forgiveness, God will steer those people back into your life. Are you praying for them? Are you praying for God to bless them and to bring them to a place of repentance? I just don't like to think about it. You've got to let the Lord reopen those wounds so that they can be healed. Do you believe that God can redirect your pain into something glorious? Or are you still stuck believing that that pain defines you? It doesn't. Families, marriages, relationships can be restored. But we've got to show the same love that Jesus did. The same willingness to stand in the gap that Judah did and the lion of the tribe of Judah did. The willingness to forego justice that Joseph did and that Jesus did. Not waiting for somebody else. We're the ones to initiate the healing process. I hear this all the time now. Well, I'm perfectly prepared to forgive as soon as they realize what they've done. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus knew they're never going to realize what they've done. I'm going to forgive them anyway. Because do you see what happened? Jacob himself was restored to joy. It's a picture and a symbol of the whole family being restored. You can apply that to whatever you like, that when one person is willing to heal and forgive and say, I love you, the whole church is better for it. The whole nation is better for it. The whole family is better for it. I don't think my situation is that significant. No, don't underestimate your Jesus and what he can use your life to be. And don't underestimate your own influence either. Have you let God touch you everywhere except where it hurts the most? God's cleaned up my language. I don't cuss anymore. He's cleaned up my gluttony, so I'm not, you know, giving in to all these indulgences all the time. I'm on time. I work hard. You know, I read my Bible. I go to church. I've been on missions trips. I tithe. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Have you forgiven your father for abusing you when you grow up? That's none of your business. Don't keep parts of your heart cut off from the Lord Every family healed is a testimony of God's grace that gives us all hope for the same grace. You might be content to let that wound scab over and move on because you'd rather not deal with it. God wants to tear that thing off and fix it properly. And he doesn't mind if it has to take years to make you ready for that. He'll do it. And don't you dare think you can abdicate this responsibility and still serve the Lord well. This is a trap that folks fall into. I'm going to completely cut myself off from all the people that have known me and loved me my whole life and start fresh and God will be okay with that. No, he won't. He's never okay with that. I'm going to leave my wife because God will forgive me. (laughs) You you do that and God is going to spend the rest of your life working on that in your heart. Well, I'm never going to talk to them again. It's okay. Now I can just focus on my walk with Jesus. What? doesn't work that way. That's the very thing that God needs you to do. But it's so hard. Yes! You need the grace of God to do the hard things. 
I mean, stopping gross, ugly sin is easy because nobody likes it anyway. But things like that, that get down into your childhood, man, that's hard. Like Judah, take responsibility and be willing to stand in the gap. Like Joseph, be willing to forgive and to bless instead of cursing. Because God is able to redirect even your greatest pain into a blessing for the whole world. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it represents? Because if you do, there's only one way to move forward.